0: Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to be in the entire chapter. If you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, if you were to open your Bible in the dead center, you would find Psalms, and then the next book is Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And you're looking for the big number 3, and we're just going to walk through the entire chapter and we've been looking at Ecclesiastes in order to gain some sort of wisdom on knowing how to navigate life. Because if we're honest, living for Jesus in 2023 feels a bit uh, uh, confusing, kind of discombobulating, if you will, as we try to, to really put into practice what we say we believe in the midst of a world that is becoming more and more anti-God or anti-God's Word. And so we want to really walk through Ecclesiastes to, to try to figure out how do we navigate life and remain faithful to Jesus Christ. We've said it's kind of like a grandfather at the end of his life speaking to his grandchildren, giving them wisdom on how to make it through life. And so this morning we're going to continue hearing from the grandfather and just pleading that the Lord would give us Wisdom together. So, uh, on a regular basis, I will be working here until about five o'clock, or maybe throughout the community, I'll work until about five o'clock. When all of a sudden I, I get my stuff together and I'm ready to go home in order to have dinner with my family. And So, I'll, I'll put my stuff together, hop in my vehicle, and as I'm driving down my street, I, I kind of pull in right in front of our house, Parallel Park. And as I'm backing up, literally, as I'm backing up, parallel parking, I see out of the corner of my eye, on a regular basis, one of my children peering out the front window, looking, waiting to see his dad come home. And literally, I'll park, I'll get out, I'll shut the door, and I start to hear a little bit of buzz and noise, and I walk up the steps. And by the time I get to the front door, that front door is, the kid is trying with all of his might to get that front door open. And the moment I walk through the door is the moment that there is much excitement and elation, and dad's home! And I can hear him just screaming, And he comes up to me, and he hugs me, and and it's in those moments, I'm like, it is good to be a dad. (laughs) Nothing against motherhood, but man, do I enjoy those moments. But why does my son do that? Is it because I am such a great dad? No. Is it because I've given him uh, amazing things in this life, and he just can't wait to see what else I will give him? Not really. You see, the reason why he is anticipating the moment that I come home and he is excited about my presence at home. This is not a knock on his mom at all. But the reason that he is excited about me coming home is because he knows that I love him. He knows that I care for him. He knows that I will protect him. He knows that I want to spend time with him. And all of those truths collide, and it results in him having joy. I'm sure you've experienced that in your own life, right? That there are certain truths that when they come together, the, uh, the spontaneous result is for you to have joy in life. You see, in that moment, my son can have joy because he knows there are no worries. He knows somebody else is in control, and he can just rest in my control. But the problem is, so often, is that when we get older, we like control, don't we? We want to figure out how to dictate every step of our lives, and when life feels confusing, we begin to tighten our grip on life in such a way that we try to manipulate and control our lives, and do you know what happens when you do that? The more you try to control your life, the more elusive that control becomes, and actually even bodily, the more you begin to become crankier and the. Freedom and life just escapes you. Ever experienced that before? The joy that you once had is now gone because you have bought into this idea that you can control life. And you can't. So what do we do about that? Well, this morning, the author is going to show us Uh, Through a number of truths, but two primary truths and the two responses, he's going to show us how we can have that freedom and the resulting joy once again. And here's how he's going to show us that. He's going to tell us this simple statement, that God's providence provides a path to praise and prize him. That the reality that God has providential control. That's a big word that just means that God is in control of all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. And the more that we can get that into our mind and push down to our hearts, the more that the response will be for us to praise Him and also prize who He is and what He gives. And my hope this morning is that We are a joyful people because we can just release and know that God is in control. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. It is a little bit longer, but I trust that by God's power, we can honor him by standing uh, for the reading of God's word. And so if you are able, would you stand with me as we read Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1, going all the way to verse 22. In all his toil, this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Are but beasts. For it happens to the children of man. And what happens to the beasts. Is the same. As one dies. So dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust all return. Who knows. Whether the spirit of man goes upward. And the spirit of the beast. Goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are walking through this book of Ecclesiastes to get a sense of how do we have wisdom for life. And what we're seeing today is, is this reality that, that we think that we can control our lives. And control is a little bit funny, isn't it? Because we have this illusion that if I just have enough strength or power or planning or wisdom, then, then somehow I can make my unstable world stable again. Maybe you don't feel like you struggle with this. Well, think about it. If if you've got kids, how many of us are putting our kids into activities because we believe by doing so, it's going to give them a better future? Or how about in conversations? How many of us do the majority of the talking in conversations or have the answers in our conversations? How many of us don't like surprises? And the moment a surprise comes is the moment we feel nervous and and anxious about life. And so we want to think through everything possible so that we can have control and, and security in life. And in each one of these situations, it's our way of trying to look at life and think, how do I operate and how do I order it in such a way that I feel comfortable in the midst of that? Yet the reality is is that the more we try to control life, the more that eludes us and, and actually the more we become exhausted by it. Right? Like if, if you've ever done that before, you know, you you life feels unstable, and so you've done everything you can to try to control life, and in the end, you just feel utterly exhausted and maybe even hopeless and frustrated that your attempts fail. So, how do we get out of that? Well, the author here shows us, shows us how we can release that control. And really take that to Jesus, and and allow us to have a peace in our life, and that comes by us knowing two truths, and then responding to those two truths. I I, I had a vision of this uh, like a birthday party. If you've ever been to a little kid's birthday party, you know one of them will start screaming uncontrollably and and crying, and you're like, well, why? Because the apparently the the color of the cake was not the right color, right? And so they just start crying over the littlest thing. And, and what does mom and dad typically try to do? They go over and they try to reason with the kid. Oh, it's going to taste the same. Oh, it's okay. You like this, right? Through words, we're trying to reframe that child's mentality to what they're experiencing. The author here is trying to reframe our mentality to what we're experiencing in life. And the only way he can do that is by grounding us us in truth about who God is. And so let's look at these truths so that it can then spontaneously uh, uh, lead to joy in Jesus. And the first truth that he shows us is God's providence over time, that God controls all time. And he shows us this by the reality that God controls every season in life. Some of you who either lived during this period or just know music, when I was reading Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8, started singing the song by the birds, right? You know, there's a season, turn, turn, if I'm getting the song right. You know, your mind immediately went there. They got it from somewhere, from God's Word. And God's trying to show us the... uh, the vast array of emotions and experiences that we, might, that we might come across in life and what we're supposed to do in the middle of it. And so notice how he sets us up and shows us this. Look at verse 1. He begins by saying, everything, there is a season. He's going to show us a number of different seasons. And what's interesting about it is he's going to show us polar opposites. We are often a kind of people that want positive experiences. And anything that feels negative, we want to push out. Or when other people around us begin to speak about their negative experience in life, we start to tune them off or tune them out. Because we want positivity. We want to feel good. And the author here is saying that that, that's not reality. There are some good things in life. And there are some incredibly hard things in life. And I believe it's actually only within Christianity that we are given the words to explain the vast emotions that we have in life. And we're going to see this time and time again throughout this book of Ecclesiastes of of the right emotion and how we are to uh, experience these right emotions in life. But he says that everything, there's a season, and there's also a time for every matter under heaven. We've seen this before, that this idea of under heaven is he's looking at life from a human perspective. Okay, so it's so easy to come to the book of Ecclesiastes and say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and and I don't I don't feel the same thing that this guy feels, or I can't imagine that he would say this. And yet there's a reality that, it, that if we're honest with the life, we can believe things of Jesus, and yet we can still question how in the world, if you're good, this is happening. Just had the question the other day. If God is good, why do bad things happen? That's a human perspective on life that the author wants us to consider and to think how do we operate in life as a result. And he begins to show us all of these competing experiences and emotions. Look at verse 2. He says there's a time to be born. We all know that, right? If you're in this room right now, you were born. Surprise! Surprise! But there's also a time to die. That's the one that's a little bit trickier, that unless Jesus returns, we're all going to die, and yet so often, we don't want to talk about it. And time and time again, throughout this book, we're going to see that death is actually a a help and an aid for our life to recenter us on what really matters. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. What is planted? I was talking with someone earlier that, that we have some daffodils in the front, and, and if they start to bloom too soon, they're gonna die. So we, we recognize that, that there, there's a time in which you wanna plant a seed or or put a plant in the ground or or whoa, we don't want that to bloom because it'll die. But there's also a time at the in at the end of the year in the fall that, that we want to gather the harvest. There's a time to kill in verse three, and there's a time to heal. You might think, whoa, 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 time to kill. That's weird. Commentators believe that what the author is doing is talking about killing in war. There is a time in which God shows us, in order to prevent a greater evil, that there is room for killing, in order to protect against the greater evil that is going on in life. And church, we should have that category in in our minds and and in our lives. Because if you've been following along at all of what is going on in Eastern Europe, uh, we must not be a people who just see Ukraine and think, oh, well, that's their problem. Who cares? But rather it should sadden us that we have brothers and sisters who are being hurt. Even in Russia, we have brothers and sisters who do not want this war. And so we cannot be indifferent. We should be praying, asking the Lord to stop it in any, any way that he can. And we see the, the author recognizes that there, there is a way in which humanity gets involved to stop evil. Then he continues. He says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. So that there's a time in which Uh, you need to tear things down and there's a time in which you need to start to build things up again. Verse 4, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. We love to laugh, don't we? We all love a good joke. But we don't like weeping because it feels a bit weak, doesn't it? Especially for us men in here. For us to weep, or as he shows us next, to mourn, feels as if we're a bit weak. And I want to encourage us as men, but then I want to encourage all of us as Americans that, that we need to have this in our toolbox, this ability to mourn over life. And weep. It was the very mourning and weeping that, that Jesus had in John 11 when he sees his friend Lazarus dead as a result of the consequence of sin, to the point that he says that, that John just writes, Jesus wept. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is uh, weeping and, and sweating drops of blood because he knows what is about to happen and the wrath of God about to be poured on his life. And I just want to encourage you because uh, if there's one thing I've noticed over the last number of years is that when death happens, we are immediately told that we need to remember life. We need to remember the good things of this person. And what that does is it removes any opportunity for us to actually mourn the loss of that person. We need to mourn. Death is hard. If they're a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't mourn without hope, as Paul says, but we do mourn the effects of sin. And so if you've lost a loved one and others have come up to you and say, It'll be all right, it's okay to tune that out and to mourn. Death is a harsh reality. And the author tells us there's a time to mourn and there's also a time to dance then he says something confusing in verse 5. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Apparently, one of the ways of warfare was that uh, if you had an open field that would be perfect for farming, and the enemy was coming, you would gather a bunch of stones and throw them into the field. Because then, then the enemy can't utilize that field for farming. But when the war is over... That field is amazing, flat, great for farming, and so you're going to gather all of the stones and get them out of the field so that you can farm again. Again, he's showing us the, the nature that, that there are wars. This is not a new thing. There are rumors of war today. It's, it's not a new thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. And yet there's times of peace. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There, there is a time in which you can see a foreigner coming and you need to wrap your arms around them because maybe they're in exile or maybe they are, are leaving their country because they're afraid. And yet there's times in which you should refrain from embracing a foreigner because they're about to blow you up. Right? We, we understand this. He's trying to show us the the extremities of of emotion. Look at verses six through nine a a time to seek and a time to lose. So there's a time to keep gathering, but also a time that you have too much and you, you need to let it go. A time to keep, but also a time to give up what you have. Maybe you're going through a financial hardship. It's a good time to start selling your stuff to pay your bills. There's a time to tear. They would often tear their clothes in mourning over a loss, but also a time of sowing. It, it was this picture that mourning is over and joy is now, has now returned. A time to keep silence. What a word for us in 2023, right? <laughs> Man, I mean, we could just stop right there and that would be enough for us, wouldn't it? Outside of needing Jesus. Man, the Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 10:19, when words are many, sin is not lacking. Proverbs 26, 20 says that for lack of wood a fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. What's he saying? Well, flip it around. How do you keep a wood? How do you keep a fire going? You keep putting wood on it. How do you keep divisions and quarrels going? You keep whispering and telling your opinion. So there's a moment in which we just need to be silent. But for some of us, there actually is a time to speak. We do see injustice, and we have the ability to shine a light upon that injustice, and we should speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. We should hate sin. We don't like this word hate, but we should hate sin in our life, in the life of those that we love. There's a time for war in order to stop the evil, and yet there's a time for peace to just enjoy God's good gifts in life. So what's the point in him saying all of these extreme experiences and emotions that we have in life? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. He begins to show us what the point is. He actually does so by asking us a question. What's the question in verse 9? He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? So if you really think about life, this is the person that that believes that if I just work hard enough, if I just work smart enough, then the two can come together and I can control life. Let me ask you, If you work hard enough and if you work smart enough, can you control death? Can you stop mourning? Can you turn things to laughter? And so clearly our ability uh, is limited. We have no ability to actually change the seasons of our life. And so we've got to like honestly look at ourselves and realize, We are limited in what we can actually control. To the point that, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's looking at life and he's saying, man, we're all scurrying about. You know, I know some of us love New York City. Some of us hate New York City. But they have a reputation of a rat race. Because if you were to zoom out, you see everyone scurrying about. And at the end of the day, you're like, what was the point of that? What did it actually produce? How did it change anything in life? That's what the author wants us to see. Is that your your trial at, at controlling things in life produces what? Nothing. So what does he see? Look at verse 11. He, he's speaking of God. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. God has put in your life and in my life this sense that there's got to be more. And that's one of the reasons why we try to control, because we realize there's got to be more than what we're currently experiencing. And yet what he's showing us is that we are totally out of control, and it's only God who controls every single season of life. And church, that should bring you incredible amount of joy. And it should bring you an incredible amount of freedom. That no matter what you go through, you can bring it before Jesus Christ and just release control to him. No matter if you're going through difficulty or joy, God is not shocked by any of your life circumstances. And you can actually lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ and just allow him to take over and take control. Give him the freedom. Uh, Give to him your burden. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That only happens because he actually has control on life. So we don't have to continuously try to prove ourselves and our worth, but rather we can rest in the worth and amazing power of God and God alone. But then he shows us a second truth. And the second truth is that God has providence over justice. God's in control of our time. Whatever season of life you're in, he is not shocked about. And so we need to just uh, come to him in prayer and dependence and trust and just release it to him. But yet, there's this justice that we often long for that we also need to give to him. We are a people who love justice, don't we? I mean, flip on the TV tonight. My guess is one of the national television stations are going to have a crime show on, a cop show. We love our justice. It's why we create these phrases, you do you, because we want to be in control of our destiny and we don't want you to control my destiny. And so by saying that, what I'm saying is is that you can't judge me So, we like justice, but so long as it's for you, not for me. And so, we create these ways and these phrases to kind of limit your justice, but allowing me to have justice. Because the moment you you begin to judge me is the moment I tell you you need to be tolerant. And the moment you cross that line of tolerance is the moment I cancel you. Do you see what just happened? We love justice. But the moment someone executes it on me is the moment I put up walls and begin to execute justice on others. So even our own justice hits these limits. And so what do we do about that? Look down at verse 16. He begins to show us. And actually, he shows us in a a way that is pretty infuriating. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. I'm a little angry at this point. I'm expecting justice. And there is wickedness. But then he goes further in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, if I'm living through this moment, my blood is boiling to the point that it might start to boil over. Ever been in that position before? You know, you wake up in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, and all these things in life start coming into your head, and you're like, why did that happen? And that wasn't fair. And and then you start to brood on that all day long. Am I the only one that ever does that? right? A number of years ago, I had a situation like that. Uh, We rented an apartment, and uh, we had gone, we were working with college students, and we had gone away for a weekend uh, at a retreat for college students. And they had guys retreat and girls retreat, and we kind of had a busy couple of days to the point that that we stayed up really, really late ministering to students, but then also slept on hard uh, gym floors, which means we got little to no sleep. And so we're driving back, and if you know me at all, you know that the moment my feet enter into the front door is the moment that we are in a rush to unpack everything and put it all back in its spot. That's just how I work. And so we're driving home, and Alicia said, "Uh, tonight, like, I I know that you normally like to unpack, like, can we, just, can we just wait till tomorrow? I'm just exhausted. Okay. I think it's the only time in our marriage that I've ever said okay to that question. But I said, okay. And we enter into our apartment and the moment we walk into our living room, I hear this noise. I'm just so tired. I just want to go to sleep. Walk into our bedroom, flip on our lights. And I see this steady stream of water coming down our light and onto our bed. And there's this pool of water on the very bed I was hoping to plop into and go to sleep. Kind of frustrating. Stuff happens. So I call my landlord. Got to get here. I mean, I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure water and electricity together doesn't really work no answer. Call again. Oh, we'll get somebody. Call again. It's like four days later and they finally come and they check it out. And I'm like, uh, you got to get this fixed and you owe us a new bed and you owe us new ma- uh, uh, bedspread and all of that because all of that's ruined. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. When you moved in here, you were told to get renter's insurance. So file it with your renter's insurance. Okay, you're right. I have renter's insurance. So I call a renter's insurance and say, oh, great, we'll go ahead and take care of you. All of a sudden, a couple days later, I get a phone call and they said, "Uh, your claim has been denied. Well, why is that? Well, we talked to a landlord. Apparently, someone was working on the roof and as they stepped, they must have stepped on a nail which made a hole in the roof which allowed the water onto your bed. It is your landlord's responsibility. And as I called the landlord... He had a few choice words for me, all of which ended up in him saying, no, we're not paying a dime. It's not our fault. It's yours. I don't know how you would respond in that moment, but I was a bit livid. And I, in that moment, I felt like justice had not been served. And 12 years later, it still has not been served in that situation. And it feels as if that's exactly what the author is saying here. That in the place in which you think fairness and justice would reign, it's wicked. So what do we do? Well, look at what he says in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Do you see what he does? We know this to be true from 2 Corinthians chapter five verse 10, where Paul told us that there's a day in which we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for what we've done. But the author knows this clearly. That whatever injustice you felt that you've received in life, the one place that you can take comfort in is the fact that God sees it, God knows it, and God himself will execute justice on your behalf. And that is a wonderful, and it is a beautiful, and as we'll see in a moment, it can also be a terrifying truth. But we need to be a people who rest in the sovereign justice of God. And yet sometimes God delays his justice, doesn't he? Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. There's a moment in which sometimes the justice doesn't happen right away. Why? Because God is trying to expose our hearts. And show us what are you trusting in, your sense of justice or in the Lord. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that trials come upon us to test us to see whether our faith is in ourselves or our faith is in God. There is this delayed justice to show are we really different than the animals? And what do the animals do? The animal kingdom works like this. You upset me, I bite your head off. The human world seems like that at times, doesn't it? And so the delayed justice is happening to show, are you really different than the animals? Is that your way of responding when injustice happens? You immediately go for a a kill shot at somebody else? Or are you going to rest in... The justice of God. Because it leads him in verse 19 to show us this reality. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. He's trying to show us that if we want to respond like, if we want to respond by, by with our own justice, we're no different than the animals. And in reality, it's kind of what it looks like. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. Look at verse 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. We read in Genesis 2 that God created man out of the dust. And when we die, we're going back into the ground. And then he kind of brings the dagger. Look at verse 21. He says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. If you and I are going to execute justice like the animals, how can anyone look at our life and say, What's different between them and the animal? I mean, after all, if, if you've ever been to a, f- a funeral, like in that moment, how do you know 100% sure where that spirit of the person went? Did it go up to heaven or down to hell? Like, we don't see it. And if you've ever had to bury Fido, how do you know whether Fido's spirit went up or went down? We can't see it. And so if we're not going to trust in the justice of God, he's saying, kind of looks like your dog dying. But we have something greater. We can trust in the Lord to work all things out. To the point that he says in verse 22, I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will will be after him? He's saying rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in what the Lord gives. You don't need to control justice. Release that to the Lord. And just breathe. And just rejoice in what the Lord has given you today. We can bring our hurts and we can bring our pain to the Lord and just trust Him. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 44, hurt your enemy, punch your enemy in the face, trip your enemy. For some of us, run your enemy over with your car. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, pray for your enemy. You know why? Because when we pray for our enemy, our hearts change towards our enemy. And so there are moments in which we should fight for justice. But we should also realize that we live in a broken world and justice may never come. And so we have to rest in the justice of God. And that should be incredibly helpful for us because some of the ways that we fight for justice is by having a sort of snobbery. That our view is better than others. And if I can just put forward my view, then it'll stop everybody else and justice will be served. Maybe you feel this at work. You're doing all the work and your coworkers are doing nothing. So if I just point that out to the boss, justice will be served. Maybe you feel this politically. If I can just point out why all the other candidates are terrible and mine is right, then justice will be served. Maybe you feel this with your money. If I can just point out about all the money I have or the great ways in which I save and how terrible you are with your money, or maybe with your kids. These are all ways that we're longing for justice. And the author says, just release that. God will make it all right in the end. You don't have to. And that should lead us into two quick responses. And so let's look at these responses that that he is longing for us to have. The first response, which is our third point, It's our praise for God's providence. This is us more than knowing, but actually trusting in God and praising him for his control. Look at verse 12. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Like, enjoy, enjoy what God has given you. He's in control. And so any moment that he gives you a gift, enjoy it. To the point in verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Why? This is God's gift to man. We should be a people who know that our Heavenly Father loves us. And so when He gives us good gifts, we just spontaneously rejoice. Man, you're in control. This is amazing. Well, how do we do that? Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, I perceived whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nor can anything be taken. God's done it. So what? So we should fear before him. You know, this idea of fear is a little tricky. Because it kind of cuts two ways, right? Right? There is this terror that we have, and there's this awe and wonder that we have. I don't know about you, but I love going to the zoo. There are certain parts of the zoo I could care less, but there's one part I never want to miss, and that's the lions. I love going to where the lions are. I love to hear their roar. I love to see them kind of strut around like they're the king of the world. I just, just their awe. And yet, if you've ever stood there watching the lions, and if they come close to you, the thought has entered my mind, and I'm sure has entered your mind. I sure hope this thin piece of plexiglass will keep them in, because if not, I am dead. There's this awe and this terror all rolled into one. And it's the kind of response that we should have to the good news of Jesus Christ. That when we look at the cross of Christ, we should have this awe and this terror all rolled into one. And when we, we begin to experience that kind of emotion, we can rest in the control of God. Well, well how do we have that? Because when we look at the cross, what do we see? On the cross, we see God becoming man. We see God living perfectly. And at the end of his life, instead of receiving a crown of gold, he receives a crown of thorns. Instead of sitting high in his throne, ruling and reigning, he is raised high on a cross of wood. Instead of the people praising his name, they scorn and they mock him and ridicule. Have you ever thought about that moment? If you are a disciple in that moment, everything that you have dedicated your life to in the last three years is turned upside down. This person who claimed to be God seems entirely out of control. I mean, he even says that, doesn't he? If you read Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This moment just feels like he is utterly out of control. And yet, if you read Acts chapter 2 and even reflect on what Amanda read in Acts chapter 4, notice what is said. Acts 2, I'm going to read just a small portion. Peter stands up and he begins to preach to the people of Jerusalem. And he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. Did you hear what he just said? They killed. And yet God foreordained. God planned this moment to take place. And then God raised him up. Loosening the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, in that moment when it feels as if God is completely out of control, it feels as if humanity has finally conquered God and killed God and God is finally dead. God is actually seated on his throne, ruling, reigning, and just thinking, oh, that's cute. You're actually playing into my hand. Have you ever played a card game? and you've kind of tricked someone into playing your your role and they're like all right and you're like ah i just set you up god just set him up because he had a greater plan he was in control the whole time To the point that now Christ is raised from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of power. And there is a day in which he will return reigning and ruling and subjecting all things under his control. And so the way in which we can release control is remembering that even when it looked like God was out of control, he was very much in control. And just as my son can trust me, we can trust our heavenly father And yet it should produce in us this fear. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it should produce an awe and a wonder. It should lead you to regularly remind yourself of all the ways that you've seen God in control today. The fact that he guided your car to get here, your legs to get here. He is guiding your mind. He is warming you with heat, just remembering the grace of God. And I want to encourage you after the service to to talk with one another and, and talk about all the ways in which you've seen God's control care for you today. But if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it should lead to immense fear as well. Because the reality of Jesus on the cross is the reality that the Wrath of God was poured out on sin. And it's either us trusting in Jesus to take the wrath of God for us, or that same wrath will be poured out on us. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to plead with you to come. I want to plead with you to trust. Trust that Jesus took that wrath for you. Trust That he is in control. And so you can release the control of your life to him and receive forgiveness through him. And that lands us on the very last thing that the author shows us. And that is our prize from God's providence, but also our prize for his providence. Look back at verse 13. We read in verse 13 that we are to eat and drink and take pleasure in all of our toil. Why? Because it's a gift from God. And look at verse 22. We're to enjoy and rejoice in our work because it comes from God. It's it's the lot that He has given. And so church, we can give up toiling and striving and controlling and and rather rest in the fact that jesus did the work for you i don't have to do the work jesus did i don't have to control jesus controls and it allows me to take a breath to just pause and to breathe do you ever do that life's hard in that moment we're able to just release to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you as the author shows us that that God has made all things beautiful in its time. Are you taking time to enjoy that beauty? Are you unplugging, creating unhurried space in your life to just God is in control. And so I can rest. I can trust. And it should lead us to enjoy our work, enjoy school, enjoy life. Because we know that none of it depends on us. It depends entirely upon Jesus Christ. So, church, we have a Father who has come to us through Jesus Christ. He is offering to us freedom when we just release our control to Him. Are we going to be like my son, who is just so excited that Dad is here? And I am free because Dad is here. Or are we going to harbor and continue to cling to our own ways of control? Which, let's be honest, will just lead to bitterness and anger and a sorrowful life. There is freedom to be had, but it comes only by releasing. And going to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, by your. Grace, you have ordained this moment for us to walk through this book. And to walk through this chapter. And to be reminded that our levels and our attempts at control don't work. And yet we so long to control our lives. And so, Father, we confess how we want our justice. We want to live life our way rather than submitting to you and your authority. Father, help us that we might see that your control is so much greater and that it leads to amazing freedom. We pray in your son's name, amen.